What's going on, everybody? This is the Founder Hour Podcast. I'm your co-host, Pat. And on today's episode, we sat down with Warren Hogarth, co-founder and CEO of Empower. Empower is a mobile app that helps consumers retake control of their financial lives by offering automated savings, personalized coaching, cash advances, and much more. In the episode, we chat with Warren about his upbringing, his college experience, and where he gets his entrepreneurial bug from, his biggest learnings from investing in early stage startups as a VC at Sequoia Capital, why he's so passionate about fintech and managing one's personal finances, where he got the idea for Empower, his long-term vision for the company, and his thoughts on the broader global financial system and where it's headed. We started off our conversation by learning about Warren's childhood growing up in Australia. Yeah, so um, as you might be able to tell faintly, I, I still have a tiny bit of an Australian accent uh, remaining. Um, I grew up uh, be- between Brisbane in Australia, which uh, is about an hour and a half flight north of Sydney, and then Western Queensland, where my grandparents had, have a ranch still. Um, my parents were out there for a while when I was very young. Um, my sister, and just to give you a sense of size, like their ranch is 35,000 acres, my sister now has a ranch of about 15,000 acres. Um, my cousins have 300,000 acres. So that was sort of um, my, my formative years were uh, in Brisbane, occasionally going to the beach for the family holiday or being sent out to the ranch to actually do some real work uh, and grow up. Um, and uh, it was it's, it's pretty awesome. Uh, I actually took my kids back uh, at Christmas time to uh, go to my sister's ranch. And it's very different. Um, my, uh, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and like the five-year-old is on a motorbike because his cousin who's five does motocross. Um, you know, they're on a horse, uh, they're branding cattle, uh, jumping on the back of calves. Um, it's good fun. So it's a little bit different to Silicon Valley. Yeah. You know, Warren, I'm curious cause I don't know what Brisbane is like, but is a 35,000 and a 15,000 acre ranch. Is that on the smaller side of things? Is that on the bigger side of things? Give us a little bit of perspective because here in America, 35,000 acres and we're talking, we're talking a city, right? Like that's a, that's a, you know, that's like Glendale where I'm at. Yeah. It's roughly (laughs) the size of San Francisco. So uh, where my folks are, (laughs) it's about, uh, it's, I suppose it's about average. Um, So it's probably five miles by five miles or a bit more. Um, we muster it all by horse. It takes about four or five days to muster about a thousand head of cattle um, and good, good mixture of snakes and other, you know, native animals. Um, and then, but if you go another couple hours West, as I said, you get to like 300,000 acres where you have a small plane to run around the waters a couple of times a week and stop at each of the watering holes and a little Cessna and, and, and uh, pump water for the cattle. I mean, I mean, what do people do out there? Like, what's the point of having so much land? Why haven't they developed it? Why haven't more people gone out there? I don't know anything about it. So this is fully educational and purely for selfish purposes for me, honestly, to learn about it. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, um, you know, I was walking through in San Francisco, there's this little uh, canyon called Glen Canyon. Um, and there's a, a bunch of beautiful gum trees in the canyon. And you get this sort of this waft, this smell of, of, of Australian gums and what have you. And it's just this, it's a way of life that's just very, very different. It's very peaceful. Um, people work really hard because you basically, your, your full-time job is the ranch. It's very hard to take any time off because someone has to be there to make sure, you know, the water, the bore water doesn't break down so the 
you know, cattle will always have water, for example. Um, and uh, it's not developed because it's it's just uh, it's very arid. It's close to the desert and it's not very dense. Um, and um, but it's a uh, it's it's a way of life, and the people out there uh, they really love it. Kids grow up tough. Uh, they're tough kids, and uh, they 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 also like to have fun. So you know, you're a kid on this ranch. What's the what's the vision for like the rest of your life? Like, is it expected of you to sort of, you know, go out and get an education, and then also come back and you know, kind of maintain the ranch and live out your days that way, or is it is it sort of you know, was did you have like a, a bigger big vision for what you wanted to do when you were a kid? Yeah. So I I mean, for me. Um, uh, I was, so my, my dad was an engineer, um, and I loved, uh, I loved building things, um, and I loved making things and I was, I love problem solving. And so, um, the ranch was fantastic because, um, you actually get to build things and solve real problems. Like I built, you know, fences, fix trucks, fix engines, uh, all kinds of things, um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I loved a lot of intellectual stimulation as a kid. So um, I was always very curious about what my dad did. Um, uh, I loved, I really enjoyed school. I loved math and sciences. And so I, it became clear to me that I was going to go down the engineering path um, rather than, uh, uh, I suppose, uh, working the land. But uh, my sister, uh, who's out out there now she uh she's taken up all of that although it wasn't obvious at the time my parents were great there was there was no expectation of anything um, and really my sisters made it all on her own actually as well so uh she's really uh they took they brought us up to be very independent and i think that's what sort of growing up uh taught like our parents taught us really well i know you did your college out there at um at queensland right um mm-hmm. and you studied engineering you then came to the United States. Is that correct? Yeah. So I, I did a chemical engineering and, and business undergrad. You can, you can do a dual degree in Australia. Um, I thought I was going to go be a chemical engineer. Uh, I had done my summer internship working in a refinery, which uh, for chemical engineers is kind of like one of the most aspirational jobs. Uh, I had signed on to go and design refineries around the world, uh, for a large oil company, um, swore I'd never do a PhD because that was for, uh, you know, people who were very intellectual and wanted to go into academia. And uh, sometimes people joke for people who couldn't get a real job. Um, and uh, but I went to this um, this lecture from a professor um, back in it was like my senior year, and he was talking about uh, biotechnology and nanotechnology and the future of energy and biology and where are things likely to go and literally this one this one lecture was a turning point for me because the next day I went and applied to go and do a PhD because I had done my summer internship while I enjoyed sort of working for a big company um, I had had a lot of side hustles and really wanted to be my own boss and create and build things and I could see that going into engineering it was going to be about uh, you know an engineer uh, uh, an industry that had, for the most part peaked and it was still going to be a lot of fun for 40 years of a career, but it wasn't going to be dynamic and changing and at the forefront and cutting edge of a lot of things. And so I actually literally changed tack right there, uh, signed up for, applied for a PhD, um, also with the hope in Australia of taking me overseas. 
Um, I was very fortunate to get a scholarship and was accepted. And um, so I started my PhD in Australia, applied for another scholarship to come to the US or Europe. Um, thought I was going to go to Europe, but ended up uh, winning a scholarship, a Fulbright scholarship to come to the US. And so I spent a year at Princeton uh, on exchange doing uh, chemical engineering research. And it was one of the best years of my life. Um, loved every minute of it, the people, uh, the professors, um, and spent a lot of time traveling around the country, did some amazing skiing, uh, saw some uh, uh, you know really fun parts of the country and, and fell in love with both entrepreneurship here in the US and so knew I needed to come back. You, you mentioned you know entrepreneurship and wanting to be your own boss and um, all that. Why, why was that a thing for you? Like where did you get that inspiration from that you wanted to eventually run your own business? Yeah, I think um, you know from from quite young, probably from about eleven or twelve years old, I was always uh, had a little lawn mowing and gardening business. Um, I literally sh- sold shit. Uh, we had horses, and I would you know shovel the shit out of the stables, put it in the bags, and put it out the front with a sign saying two dollars a bag for your fertilizer. Um, and uh, then I did tutoring. And when I worked on the ranch, I, uh, at some point I contributed enough to, uh, you know, make a few bucks an hour. And, um, you know, I think it, it also, um, there's a lot of independence that came from that and a lot of fun. Uh, I got to, um, you know, my grandfather my, on the other side gifted me a few stock in a company called Manizer Mines, which was a mining company, which was one of the largest Australian companies at the time. And I learned about sort of stock ownership and investing and, I just had a lot of fun and freedom from that. And uh, that combined with the fact that uh, the intellectual stimulation, you get to, depending what kind of entrepreneur you want to be, but being a tech entrepreneur, you really get to be at the forefront of some of the most cutting edge um, and dynamic industries in the world that make and contribute in massive ways. And so, you know, one example many, many years later is I was very fortunate to lead a Series A investment in a company called Garden Health which is the, um, was building a blood-based cancer biopsy uh, at the time. And it was, you know, 10, 10 people in a lab uh, with the belief that we could take a, uh, you know, a drawer of your blood in a vial, sequence that blood, and we could see if there was cancer anywhere in your body. Um, and that company is now a public company uh, with 10 plus billion of market cap, and, uh, you know, making a difference in, you know, hundreds of thousands of people's lives in the U.S. And it's not just help detect cancer now, it helps you build targeted or choose the targeted therapies to go after that specific cancer because every cancer is pretty unique. Um, and so, you know, that the, the fun and the stimulation and everything that comes from that side of things with the independence, I think, of being an entrepreneur, um, are just two things that, you know, get my juices flowing. So it's a lot of fun. Warren, was it challenging to come to the U S as a PhD student and just start a new life here? Or was it easy for you to adapt to, you know, this kind of American society and even just the East coast is different than the West coast, but to like what life was like out in the East coast. It was different. That's for sure. Um, I've, uh, uh, certainly had some formative periods. Uh, I remember um, one uh, one of the women I met when I just arrived in the lab. Um, 
you know, this is a PhD student in chemical engineering at Princeton, which I would consider, you know, a uh, um, slightly Ivy, you know, university. And she was describing to me how her father had given her uh, a pistol, a gun to put under her bed when she went to college because for safety. And this was just such a foreign concept to me that somebody would basically sleep with a gun under their pillow, literally for college for safety. Uh, when, you know, there's very low gun ownership, for example, in, in Australia. And so like, there are these cultural things that are just like a complete mind bend. Um, and then, you know, the, an, another one that's, that still gets me today is the, the sense of hum- humor is very different and it got me into trouble a few times. So, uh, when you're, when you're in Australia and you meet someone for the first time and you kind of like them, you know, uh, as a friend or, or whatever, you, you know, you take the piss, you sort of, uh, you know, you start to make fun of them. And it's, it's actually means you, you like somebody, like you make a joke about them or what have you. And so I did that a few times over here and it really rubbed people the wrong way. And I couldn't understand why, uh, why I wasn't endearing myself to people, I suppose, uh, early on. And uh, then one or two people took me aside and uh, explained that um, people are a little more sensitive and, and laugh at themselves a little less here. So, uh, so those were, those were certainly two, uh, two really important uh, learning aspects. Um, but I will say it's balanced by, you know, in Australia, we have this concept of a tall poppy syndrome where as the concept is, as people rise up, people like to cut them back down. And I think something that's amazing, you know, to this day about the States is that if you, you know, this concept of meritocracy, if you work hard, if you get a few lucky breaks, um, you know, people will generally be very supportive and and hold you up and, um, and give you a chance or give you a go. And uh, that's something that's, that was really special, and uh, you know, to this day, I'm, I'm greatly appreciative for. Um, so after Princeton, you know, you get your PhD. Uh, what did you end up doing after that? So it's a good question. Um, so I did, I did my PhD with the hope to start a company. Uh, I wanted to develop some technology and and found a business. Any particular like technology or just anything? <laughs> I, I, uh, I wish I was so discerning. Uh, I, we were. I, I went in with the concept of, hey, I want to. I want to pick something I think could be commercial, something that I had to believe in and frankly have mildly any sort of talent of mine might be helpful at building. So um, I ended up choosing fuel cells as the area, which if you wind back the clock, so this is 2002. um, At the time, people thought it could be fuel cells instead of batteries that would power electric cars or that would power laptops and and. And, and, and basically provide very high energy density for devices. And so um, it was supposed to be a technology that was five years away from market, three or four years of a PhD, found a company, it'd be a year away from launching into market, sounded perfect. Uh, what we learned uh, was we built some great technology, we filed some provisional patents, but um, it was a lesson in compounding, which is in technology or finance or anywhere is such a hard thing to 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 really grasp intellectually until you've felt the pain of it but batteries kept getting better at five to seven percent a year and so that means the energy density and their capability was doubling you know every four or five years and so it basically put fuel cells um out of reach and so my joke was when i started my phd the technology was five years away from market and when i ended you know three and a half years later it was at least five years away from market uh so but I learned a lot. We we I built a business plan, 
won the Princeton business plan competition with a bunch of mates, um, had a chance to meet VCs, talk to startup founders and realized that I could start something and do something really interesting here, but I didn't want to, my technology, I wasn't, I, that's where I was very pragmatic. It was, it was not the right time. So I, um, uh, I actually had to leave the country for visa reasons. And so I left, I, um, to come back, the best, really the only way to do it was on a student visa. So I applied to go to business school. And um, fortunately, I, I got I got uh, rejected from MIT, but accepted into into Harvard, which I thought was quite ironic as a PhD in, in engineering. Um, and uh, so I came back and my, my goal was to spend two years where I didn't have a big gap on my resume, meeting great people on the business side uh, while hanging out across the river and, and spending a lot of time with the technologists and I got to do that, and it was that was a an amazing period as well. In those years of being a PhD student and going to a business school, were you ever concerned at all about making money or having like a career, or were you just more focused on I want to be a founder of a company and I'm going to do whatever it takes to eventually get to that point? And if that was the case, how did you end up funding your life? Yeah, so it's um, you know I was. Uh, brought up to be quite, um, I suppose, to learn to be just sort of frugal. Uh, I had a, again, I was very fortunate with scholarships. I was, I had a $20,000 a year scholarship through my PhD that I was able to come comfortably live off. And uh, because I'd worked and saved up a lot before college, uh, I had some savings for business school and then the rest I took out in loans. So, but just to give you a sense, one summer in business school, I worked on a construction of a gas pipeline where we worked 80 hours a week and um, I basically took home two grand a week uh, as a data person collecting data in the field because every every hour you worked over 40 hours a week, you got double time and you got all these other benefits and stuff. So it was 28 days straight in the field and then they'd fly you home for seven days and back. And I'd, so I just, I'd work hard, I'd save, put it all in the bank and, uh, and live, try and live very simply and for me, the investment was really just in the intellectual side and in, in me. And I, um, I believed that if, you know, the biggest investment you can make over time is your own human and intellectual capital. And if you, if you, you know, make good decisions through that, the other things, you know, financially will follow over time. And so, um, it's always been a mantra for me and it's allowed me a lot of flexibility years later it allows me to leave and be a founder again because i wasn't overcommitted. um i'm sure you know you've had many founders on the show but you know often in those first year or two you're walking away and leaving a lot on the table you probably are making no income and in fact you might be investing and bootstrapping in the business and so you need to not be tied into an expensive lifestyle um, and so yeah i just it's through living simply and working hard on the side. I was able to make it work. Tell us, tell us about your experience in business school. What were you like your biggest takeaways from that? Yeah. Um, so coming from a PhD, the, I suppose the difficulty side from an intellectual side of business school wasn't overly complex. Uh, like, you know, the accounting and, and even the finance on the math side is not, uh, you know, I was doing a lot of three-dimensional uh, time-based modeling of very complex systems, and so this was relatively straightforward. The uh, you know, it, it's much more about the human side of things. Uh, you're learning about uh, 
um, business strategy and decisions and uh, on one aspect. And then, frankly, as people often say, a lot of it is about the network and the relationships you build during those two years. And I think, um, you know, still to this day, some of my best friends and thought partners are from that two-year period. Uh, and um, so, so that was really cool. And then the other thing, frankly, is it's a – what business school does two other things well. It allows you to change your career or change uh, industry, and it allows you to reach out to people who would typically say no and just take all kinds of risks and experiments. So with some friends, I helped start a company in business school – this is 2007. We raised seed capital when no one was raising seed capital. So we learned, learned a ton through that process. And then I, w- I would was send the, these calls. What was the business? It was, a, it was a fintech business. So we were trying to crowdsource financial wisdom. Um, and with this, this belief that at that time, most uh, like good investment advice was published and very expensive and behind firewalls from investment banks and what have you. But a lot of people knew a smart aunt or uncle or somebody who was quite thoughtful. And could we get those people to write and publish uh, great content and earn something from that as well? So we wanted to disseminate that. And then there was this concept of could we allow people to invest in other people's portfolios? Um, Ran into a lot of securities laws issues, uh, which is very complex. Um, Mm -hmm. And ironically, ended up competing with a company called Kaching, which... uh, almost, uh, what is it, uh, 13 years later is a company called Wealthfront after a few pivots. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, it was a fun time. So I know we'll talk about Empower in a bit, and which is also a fintech business. And so I'm curious, you know, at this time while you're in business school, how did you first get exposed to the fintech space and like what was going on there and, and finding these opportunities? Like what was that first moment or something that caused that, that spark? Yeah, that's it's a great question. I think um, what happened for me in fintech, I think one is early on in, as I said, when I was very young, my grandfather gifted me a few stock and I rode that up and down and, and learned just so much from being an owner, even though, um, you know, it was, I think, like $100 worth of stock or something. But, you you know, you learn so much from that experience. Um then over time, uh, you know, the global financial crisis came in 07, 08, um, and that wiped out like half the net worth of my parents because they'd gotten bad financial advice and they had levered up to invest in the market. And then when the market goes down 30, 40%, as you know, it just destroys all the equity value and there was very little left over. Uh, and then as coming to this country, I was struck by just how um, both complicated things were, uh, uh, non-intuitive things were, and uh, you know, I, I saw I saw firsthand through friends and what have you the impact that was having on people. So, for example, for me, I thought the right thing to do when I came to this country was to pay your bills on time and not borrow money. And if you did that, you'd always be able to you know get a loan or what have you in the future. Uh, four years later, when I went to get my first ever loan, uh, I uh, I got dinged because I didn't have a credit history. I never borrowed money, and I'm. But I was like, "Hey, hold on! I've I've paid. I've never missed a bill in my life. I've always had savings. Why, why won't you lend me any money?" And I literally, this was to get a car so I could drive to work. Um, 
the only way the car salesman got around it is he made me take out my business school diploma and photocopy it. And he somehow managed to use that as evidence that I was good credit and, and get a load. And clearly that's not normal for, for most folks. Uh, and, you know, that happened over and over and over. I became this sort of center of gravity for people who had questions about money because it just was this personal interest and passion. And it kind of went from there. And then I met other people at business school that had a similar belief that things should be easier and simpler and we could do more. And uh, again, it's this wonderful time to experiment and reach out to people. And so from finance professors to um, individuals outside who became advisors or what have you, that was was really where it went. So I know after uh, graduating from business school, you ended up, uh, did you go and start working at Sequoia Capital right away? Or was there like a gap in between? Yes, I joined, uh, I joined Sequoia right out of business school. And how did, how did you come across, you know, venture capital and, and why, why, why did you decide to go into that side of things? So it was a little bit by accident. Um, like I, I really wanted to start a business coming out of business school in a company. Uh, the company I had founded with these friends, they left, uh, they deferred business school halfway through and, and went and did that full time. I couldn't because I was on this student visa again. And if I dropped out, I had to leave the country. Um, and so I, I stuck it through, but was continuing to like riff on different ideas. And what I was doing at the time was, uh, I wanted to meet people on the West coast. I built this amazing network, uh, on the East coast, just through hustle. And I wanted to do the same on the West coast. So I started just emailing people, cold emailing people and saying, Hey, I, I have a bunch of meetings in two weeks, like on whatever the 15th of, uh, you know, September, um, you have 30 minutes. I, you know, I see your, you were a PhD and you founded a company. I'm trying to do the same. I'd love to just spend 30 minutes and understand about your journey or, you know, share an idea and love to get your feedback or, on how I could get this off the ground. And I wasn't flying out there. I had no meetings. I would try and get a whole bunch of them together. I'd buy a ticket, crash on my friend's couch and go around and meet all these people. And it turned out to be super effective. I met a bunch of uh, VCs in the process, and um, that that was really cool. And I again was riffing on ideas, and it was literally a friend of a friend got rejected from another job interview, and he came over to me one day. This is a business school, and he said, "Hey, I hear these guys at Sequoia are looking for someone with uh, an energy background." Um, and it's a technical background. You might want to just reach out and gave me an email address. And it, it literally went from there. And at the time, clean tech and green tech were becoming these, these really big and important trends, including in, in venture capital. And um, I happened to, to have you know, done my PhD and, and really focused in that area. And I flew out on one of these trips and I stopped by and met them. I'd never heard of Sequoia. I was reading the bios of the people I was meeting on my Blackberry in the car park. And I was, I was just myself. And I think because I was just very authentic, it, it's, it went really well. And frankly, two weeks later, they, they offered me a job. And did you know anything about venture capital? Did you know what the business was like? Did you know how you would bring in deals? Did you know how to analyze deals? I mean, how, how, you know, much knowledge and experience did you have prior to this job? So I knew a little bit because uh, through my time at Princeton and at, at HBS, uh, I had 
pitch VCs as well as, you know, Meta, quite a few. Um, so I understood the concept of, you know, you and – I, and I was, just to be clear, I was focused on what's considered early stage venture capital. So this is, you know, two people in a garage through to maybe 10 or 15 people that might have raised a bit of seed capital. And we were investing at that point and helping them grow, ideally to be billion-dollar-plus business over the next five to 10 years. And that's kind of the fundamentals of what I knew. Did I know how to pick a great company, um, et cetera? Uh, I understood, I thought I understood, you know, uh, a little bit. I, You know, we'd done a few cases on it. Uh, but I think I had to be, uh, you know, completely re- retrained and refreshed uh, once I started. And it really is an apprenticeship. Um, and you do this for a couple of years and you – one of the most amazing things is you get to basically pair up with the smartest and, and leading investors and effectively, you know, um, carry the water bag and go to a bunch of board meetings and pitches and what have you. And what's amazing is you, you, and I think still to this day, one of the most amazing learnings is about people. And most founders and execs are, are on a spectrum. Like you're crazy in one dimension or another, um, and it all can work. And so you see VP sales or you know VP engineering or CMOs that are highly introverted or highly extroverted or highly this or highly that, and you see all of those and how that works together as a team and how you how they all need to mix together and to be successful. And um, so it was really a very you know um, I came in with a lot of energy and belief that I, you know, um, knew, knew a lot. And, uh, again, was a few times had to be pulled aside and say, just slow down a little bit. Uh, you know, you've, you've still got a few things to learn here. You might be really excited about this business, but let me, let me tell you, uh, a few other fundamental things that might be, might be a miss here or why we might choose to pass on this opportunity. Um, and, uh, it was a huge learning. Uh, so, uh, one I'm very grateful for. Yeah, I'm curious. What did you learn? Um, I'm sure you met, you know, you came across a lot of startups during your time there. So, what did you learn about, you know, the companies that did end up, you know, becoming successful that perhaps you funded or you saw some of your colleagues, you know, were were involved in those deals? What What did you notice and what did you see? Um, because I'm I'm assuming, you know, that kind of leads to the venture fund also doing well if they're investing in successful startups. So, I know they're tied together. Like, what did what did you learn from from that side of stuff? Uh, so, um, quite a number of things, uh, the, I'd say some of the big takeaways and this, as, as you say, was sort of became the sort of the foundation for the thinking of empower and, and the business I run and, and building today. Um, I'd say the first one is, is very much about markets. Uh, and the sort of the analogy that I was taught and, and, and still share today is imagine you're a surfer. And let's say surfer is like the representation of the quality of the team. You could be the world champion surfer, but if it's only a three foot swell and the brakes in the wrong direction, no matter how good you are, you're only going to go so far. And if there's no waves, it's very hard to create a wave. On the other hand, you could be, you know, 20th, 30th, 40th in the world, or, you know, the B or B plus even, let's just frame it that way but you've got the perfect 20-foot break and wave and you get to jump on that wave, there's a lot of mistakes that that'll make up for. And so finding 
a big secular opportunity or trend to be part of is one of the most important things and that it's very hard to make a market. So one of my first investments was where we thought we could make a market. We were doing, it was it was an investment in a solar company where we thought through robotics and what have you, we could effectively create an opportunity for utility scale solar. And there just wasn't a, you know, like a sucking sound from the market. There wasn't, the demand wasn't there yet. And we weren't able to create the demand with our product. Uh, and that was a painful lesson because it was an A team. It was a phenomenal team and one of the most painful things to see is a great team fighting really fucking hard every single day to to um to win and there's just nothing they could do about it because the market wasn't there so those were some of the first lessons uh the second one is definitely around team uh and it's you know it's it's very cliche however you know one of the things i wanted to do was build a team not just that I thought it was exceptional, but that I wanted to come in and work together every single day with, where I was excited to get out of bed no matter what, whether we were, the house was on fire, um, I felt I wanted it to be the team that I wanted to go fight the fire with, or whether, you know, things were going phenomenally and, you know, we were running an amazing race and um, we we're all lifting each other up. And uh, so... I was, that's, that was one of the reasons I wanted to found a company is because I got to build a team from scratch of people I love to work with every single day. Uh, a diverse team, a thoughtful team, people that would challenge me, would teach me every day. And uh, then when you, when you find people like that, they hire great people as well. And it solves one of the biggest challenges in building a company, which is hiring. And uh, so people who want to then go and work for these people. So uh, that was one piece. I'd say the last part was just around different qualities of business model and um, time to market uh, that you can be too early in a market. And, you know, uh, sometimes you want to be lucky more than right. And uh, don't, don't fool yourself if, because a lot of the time some things happen because of luck. Uh, and so yeah. uh, be humble enough to realize that. And I know Sequoia, I mean, is a, is a historic venture capital firm, you know, has invested in some of the biggest companies that have, known to mankind and i'm sure you know having been so so long you know deep into the you know in, into venture capital um perhaps they you know like you said if let's say you know you're analyzing a startup and the market the the tam the total addressable market is not you know a billion plus and it doesn't look very promising um they might pass but you know we see a lot of these venture capital firms recently pop up um, in the last you know five ten years that are sort of focused on these moonshot you know ideas that uh, currently don't have a much a very big market but like you said could you could create that that market um, is that something that do you think that that's a sustainable model do you think that's something that you know we need more of uh, and that for for more innovation to happen for more for, for us to be further along, you know, as humanity to create problems, create solutions for problems that are societal or, um, you know, I don't know, situations that maybe it's hard to solve through business that is, doesn't have a sustainable business model just yet. I don't know. Well, what are your thoughts on, on that whole? So I think um, you're wandering into a, what I would call the space of like, what is the right capital for the right project? And so I absolutely believe that, you know, moonshot projects, uh, big swings, however you want to frame them, are 
um, critical for like moving the needle for humanity. Um, I'll give you an example. So maybe seven years ago, there were two very hot companies going around um, that were pitching asteroid mining business models. So they were pitching, basically, they were going to build rockets, they were going to land on asteroids, they were going to mine the minerals off the asteroids, which are very rare on Earth. They don't know what they're going to be, like what what minerals are on there. Just believe me that there are going to be something really, really valuable there and um, and come back and then sell it. And that was probably at least seven or eight years away to go and do it. I mean, just to be, just so you guys know, like a bunch of very well-known tech CEOs, um, you know, invested in these businesses, some who may have had their Twitter accounts compromised recently. So, um, you know, it was, it was this capital to do that. Yeah. I, won't, I won't name specific names. Uh, but yeah, so, you know, uh, there is some capital for some really, really crazy ideas. I got pitched, I, I, I think, uh, I'm not sure if I still have it or not, but I had someone ring me up and, and literally tell me that they had created a device that could make it rain for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, and uh, they were going up and down Sandal Road. You'll see a lot of crazy, you, you see a lot of crazy or out there ideas. Let me call it out there ideas. So um, there's certainly a space. And, you know, one again, one of the things, like if you look at SpaceX today and the fact that we're back, you know, America's back putting um, humans in space, if you look at Tesla, if you look at um, – you know, some of the most cutting edge biotech, the fact that if you look at a coronavirus vaccine and many of the leading companies in this space like Moderna and Kiliad and what have you are American companies, it's because there's that risk capital. I think the question is just what is the what is the right capital? Early on, it's I'm a believer. It's, you know, it's um, the government, the NSF, uh, a, a lot of the various government agencies. So NSF is the National Science Foundation, uh, et cetera, put tens of billions of dollars into these projects. Even Tesla had a $5 billion loan or something from the government, you know, to save it at one point for uh, manufacturing. So it just depends. Um, I think private capital has a really important place in helping allocate capital efficiently. Uh, upstream of that, there's, there's different places. Yeah. Um, so uh, I know you eventually left uh, Sequoia to, to start your own business. And so when you were there, we often hear, you know, the whole grass is greener on the other side feeling where you're a VC and you sort of see entrepreneurs building businesses and you want to be an entrepreneur and then vice versa. Like, you know, an entrepreneur is looking at VCs like, oh, I want to be a VC. So was that the feeling for you? Like, did you, did you sort of get that bug again that you wanted to, 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 to create something for yourself? Yeah. So, um, as I mentioned, it was, it was a little bit accidental the way I ended up in venture. Uh, I didn't imagine that I would would get the job, and when I did, it was just this insane opportunity to to to, to learn and to help uh, in um, help build some really foundational companies. And uh, again, was very lucky. I mentioned the cancer genomics company. There was a uh, Sunrun, which is the largest solar finance company in the country. That's public. Uh, it's about a five or six billion dollar company now. Um, uh, Carbon, which is one of the leading 3D printing companies. Uh, there's just, it was it was amazing to, to help build those companies. And then, you know, whether it be Dropbox, Airbnb or Stripe, like uh, it, it was really cool. Uh, I think 
the thing that I learned about investing and the itch that I had to scratch was actually more of a personal one around um, proving to myself uh, what I could do myself. And so um, I had uh, I also had helped found another or co-found another company while I was at Sequoia with a we found this amazing scientist and um, they were, he didn't have a business partner at the time. So I stood in and, and helped play that role for through the Series A of the business. And but I never take it something all the way through. And I had I need to find out where my limits are and prove how far I can go. And uh, so that was that's a big part of it. And I wanted to do it in, in something where I felt I had an edge and where I felt I could make a, a really meaningful impact for individuals and in people's lives. And then the second part is around team. Uh, the investing is a lot of fun, but it's a little bit like being on a swim team. Uh, it's it's sort of a looser coupling of individuals. You spend, you, you definitely benefit from each other. Uh, you're representing the same firm, but you spend 80% of your time with your portfolio companies, not with your teammates. And in a business, you build a team that is fighting for one goal uh, and you rely on each other. If anyone makes a mistake, drops the ball, uh, you you all feel that pain. And so you're in the trenches together. And that feeling, that that team, that camaraderie, that's something that I that I really missed as well. And that the leadership that comes with that. Um, and so it's, you know, people say it's a bit like being investing is a bit more like being a coach. Uh, this is this is really about being in the center of the ring and you're responsible for the the bad, the very bad, and occasionally the good. So when did the idea for Empower come and how did it come and what got you to say, you know what, I'm going to go all in on this, you know, thank you to the VC experience, but time to kind of move on. So uh, the sort of the tipping point in going all in was had my first child and you start to really think about like what it is that you're doing and, you know, time, it started to realize it wasn't going to be easier necessarily to wait longer and then in terms of ideas this is I, like as i mentioned back in business school i'd helped some some friends start a company in the space and i had continued for my parents at this point post the global financial crisis had really helped them sort of stair step their way back out to sort of start to be able to talk about retirement again for my dad he's now slowly starting to to back off, which is important for his health and, and a few other things. Um, and, uh, you know, I, in the US, I'd just become amongst my friends, someone that people would call up if they're like, what should I do about a 401k? Or, you know, should I refinance these loans? Or what kind of home loan should I get? Um, where should I, my mother-in-law, where should I be putting my retirement savings? All of those kinds of things. And, um it had, it had become very – so if you go back to sort of the criteria for me, it was first of all it had to be something that was meaningful to what we would do for folks. And so Empower is really about it's – a, it's, an, it's a banking app that automates your finances and gives you financial advice and better products. And so you come in, you can open a checking account, automate a savings account with us, we automate financial advice for your day-to-day money to help you get ahead. Uh, we now there's a cash advance product, so if people are in a bind between between paychecks, they can get access to instant cash as well. And um, it's if what we realized is that 
you know, 70% of people in this country are paycheck to paycheck. Uh, Two thirds of millennials lack basic financial literacy. And yet money is at the heart of so much of, of how we live. It impacts where we live. It impacts our healthcare. It impacts our kids or where they go to school. Uh, it impacts the relationship with our spouse. Um, and what we're able to do is, and I sort of sat on the other side where I've been investing in all these companies that were automating advice for sales forces or customer success teams or engineering, like, like this basic thing, like basic financial advice about what to do better with your money. Like we could do that and we could help the vast majority of Americans. And so, and what we see is we're able to, you know, help people find at least three, four, 500 bucks of savings a year. And in many cases, if they would put their savings on autopilot, we're saving them, you know, a thousand to 10 grand a year. And uh, it makes a meaningful difference. And um, so that's really where it started. It's a $2 trillion industry. There's all kinds of perverse incentives. And we're like, we're just going to, we're going to go back to the drawing board. We're going to use software to do things cheaper and better and we're going to create a business model that also makes sure our incentives are aligned to do the right thing for consumers. So you have this idea. What was like the next step? Uh, did you have to find someone to build the software? Did you build it yourself? Like, how did you go about the you know getting it getting it up and running? Yeah. So that the hardest thing was finding uh, a technical co-founder. So um, while I I was a as a decent chemical engineer, I and I've done a little bit of code. Um, I wasn't the person to write, you know, a, um, an automated software solution that would, um, both solve people's financial problems in a highly secure way, et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, the first thing I did was go looking for a co-founder and, um, yeah, I, I actually looked hard and what, like far and wide. And I thought I would find someone in my, my sort of first circle of, of, of close friends or, or colleagues and, and people I've worked with. And I, I ran into that problem actually because now I wasn't, you know, 22 and out of college. Uh, now I was in my my early 30s, and I had a kid, and many of my friends had kids or mortgages. Uh, I ran into two challenges. Uh, one is that people had gotten to a point in life where they had committed to a um, an income level that required them to stay where they were, uh, or they and there's no, no negative on this, but the hunger and the fire in the belly, the chip on the shoulder to like prove yourself wasn't there anymore. They had sort of, that had happened through the twenties. They had some successes or what have you, but they were sort of, you know, they were happy, family was good or what have you. And I, I needed both. I needed someone who's willing to walk away because they believed enough and could walk away because they didn't, it wouldn't mean they couldn't feed their family. Uh, and I needed that fire in the belly. Um, and, Fortunately, it came through a connection from a very good friend of mine um, to someone I hadn't met before, but that sort of warm uh, introduction, I think, was sort of the, the catalyst. And, and what were they doing at the time and what was their conversation like? Like, how were you able to get them to join you and actually, you know, buy into the vision and, and risk perhaps everything at that time to build a, build a new business? Yeah, so, uh, so Justin, who's my co-founder and CTO, uh, we met at a... So a friend organized a small gathering of about 25 people, um, sort of like a, an unconference of people who might become co-founders or what have you. We met there uh, at this event. And what was very fortunate is that 
Justin had um, he had built his own company in the past, uh, one successfully and one where he had tried and and was less successful. And uh, fortunately, he was between he was looking for his next thing, and he had a very strong belief in in uh, building um, software that could drive um, you know improve people's financial lives as well. And he 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 wanted to do that. That was part of uh, um, uh, I suppose, uh, you know, he knew, he, he loved finance. He wanted to do something in that space. He wanted to do something that would make a difference, but he didn't have the, like the idea or the business side of the business, um, having committed to a business around it. And that's where we sort of came together and there was a meeting of minds. And so it's very fortunate that, you know, he was at a point where it was a space that he was very interested in. He was very committed to it committed enough to like we we bootstrapped the business for the first eight, 18 or 24 months we didn't take a salary um like we wanted to do it like where we were like we were all in i remember when i first learned about empower it was i think in 2017 uh alexis ohanian had tweeted something and uh i remember that i wasn't making a lot of money but i had enough money where i was like i should probably like figure out how i'm spending things like i have my student loans i have my car payment, my phone payment, this and that insurance. And so I remember downloading Empower uh, back in 2017, so now three years ago. What was Empower on day one and what is it now and what does it offer to people and who are you trying to go after? I mean, like, who is your main, who's your target audience? Yeah. So day one, we decided to start by... Um, and the simplest way to think about it is building a, a much better version of Mint. We wanted to, you'd aggregate your financial information, uh, and that's where the commonality was. But from there, rather than being the place where you would sort of come and look at sexy graphs of your, you know, what's going on, where you had to both be disciplined and financially literate, we wanted to make it so that we would take that data and do the interpretation for you. You could look at the graphs if you want. But for most people who didn't understand that or didn't have the time, we would just push you nuggets of information and tell you what you needed to do to do the right thing. And um, that was that was working. That was sort of very easy to – that was the MVP, if you want. It was the easiest way with like five of us to launch a product and, you know, see if there was demand and tailwinds in the market. And fortunately, there was and uh, had met Alexis as part of that and that catalyzed the – the investment that the initialized and the team made. Um, what is it today? So I'd say there's two aspects of what I've learned about people and money. You know, there's telling people or helping people know what the right thing to do is, and then you have to make it so easy to do it that people can do it in one tap, or two taps. Because if it's not, people don't have the time, like the friction of logging into a different bank account finding an account and routing number, putting it in another place, waiting three days, then doing this. I mean, I don't know if you guys have refinanced a house recently, but I think there's maybe 100 pages of paperwork you've got to sign for something you already own. And it's absolutely bananas. And when the bank wants your data, they literally ask for statements still. I mean, it's it's, it's bananas. And so um, the what, where it went from there is we decided to launch a checking account and a savings account and then this cash advance product, we actually started to build financial products underneath it that were seamlessly integrated. So that if we could say, um, hey, you're paying 300 bucks a year in overdraft fees, you know, let's just get rid of that for you. Or, 
hey, did you know we could, the, it doesn't look like you're having much success saving. Why don't you just, why don't we let us do it for you? We'll take away, we'll take a couple of percent or 30 or 50 bucks out of your paycheck when it hits each time. We'll move it to the side. If you need it, you can get it back instantly. But uh, most of the time for people, if you set it aside and they don't spend it, it'll just start to, to build and accumulate. If you leave it in the account, they'll just spend it. And so, and then that, and then we use the cash advance product. We use all of this data, then start underwriting people better so that they didn't have to have a fancy credit score if you were financially responsible. Um, and so today it's about integrating those two. So you, um, you don't just give people the best advice. You, in one tap, you can take advantage of it. I have this sort of b- broader question, you know, when it comes to, I'm, I'm very much an optimist when it comes to, you know, technology and innovation. And I think that, you know, solving the problems of today are going to allow humans to, you know, at least start focusing on bigger problems to solve. And, and it's going to kind of, you know, push the, to, to the little things to the side. But you mentioned like, you know, two thirds of young people um, are not very well versed, you know, when it comes to financial literacy. Do you think that that's a skill that is is very much needed to, for other things just to be able to to have like are you are you teaching in the process like is empowered teaching its users financial literacy or is it just doing the work for them and they don't really have to do you know know much about it so you they don't have to know it but we certainly we try to educate and inspire as part of what we do so um let me give you an example uh, most people don't know, even people who are uh, have very, you know, are quite financially literate, realize that if you move the credit utilization on just one of your credit cards above 30% in the month, it can really impact your credit score quite negatively in that month. Um, very recent example for me, I did this on my business card. I took the utilization to maybe 35%. Then uh, I tried to apply for an Amazon credit card to get 5% back, and I actually got rejected. Uh, Again, never missed a payment in my life. My credit score is normally over 800, but it had dropped down to 725 or something or 730 within one month, even though I paid it off in full because within the month I ran up uh, uh, the utilization, and even though I have tons of other credit available. And so um, just little things like this, we send someone a note, hey, your credit utilization just went above 30. Let's bring that down now so it doesn't impact your credit score. Then we can start to tell you why. Why is your credit score important? So we first start to sort, try and just automate and solve the problem and then use that as an opportunity to educate. Um, another example is just simply, are people spending more than they're earning each month? And a lot of people couldn't tell you this month, are they ahead or behind? And that's a, it's a very important thing for 70% of people who are paycheck to paycheck. I have a couple of questions, but I guess one of my more macro questions is that, you know, in the fintech banking investing space, there's a lot of players, right? There's a lot of companies now that are involved in this. And even now I'll connect with people that are starting new companies that are based on this, right? Either trying to save you money or recently I talked to someone who's developing, um, a Chrome extension of some sorts to help you literally stop spending money online, not only by notifying you, but I don't know what it's going to do. It's going to stop. It's not going to allow your payment to go through or whatever. Um, so there's a lot of competition in the space, right? How do you maneuver that? And how do you manage your team and inspire them to almost, I don't know, do you have them ignore the noise or do you have them continue to innovate and embrace the competition? I'm curious about what 
you are like and how you lead in those situations? It's a great question. Uh, so I think earlier you mentioned like sort of who is our target customer. And that's something that we've refined a lot over um, over the last two or three years. Earlier on, it was definitely a young professional, someone who was um, making a little bit more than average, uh, probably making 75 to whatever, 150, 200K a year. Now what we've realized is that we can have the biggest impact and we're having the biggest impact actually for people uh, who aren't quite there yet, that are lack a little bit lower, have a lower financial literacy in that sense, but uh, uh, and, and and just really need help to, to make those ends meet and come together. And this is, it's teachers or nurses or uh, um, contractors or Uber drivers. There's, there's many people who, who we can really make a difference for here and need like need some help. And again, it's part of it is they lack some financial literacy. Part of it is um, it's just very complicated. Like the yield curve inverted, you can go and refinance your mortgage and save money. Most people don't know that as well. Uh, so but that's who our target is. And this space, what people I think don't quite appreciate is how huge the space is. There's two trillion of market cap to go after here. I mean, people are building vertical finance and banking companies in as narrow an area as four landlords who are um, uh, who are like first generation owners that you know have between one and four properties. And um, like as an example, I, I have a friend who's literally raised. 15 or 20 million to go and do a banking solution just for that target market. And there's, there's so much to go and do there. And there's so much, what it tells you is how much fat there is in the existing system. Um, you know, it costs a traditional bank about 150, 200 bucks a year to serve their customer. We should be able to do that for 10 to 20 bucks. And so you can imagine if all of that is given back to consumers every year. Um, so fortunately for us, what we've, what, where, where we are aligned as a team is that, when um, we we see enough demand for our product and, and people coming to our product, that they're, they're coming from traditional banks. They're not coming from other new banks or startups. And so right. what I keep telling my team is if, if it's up to us, like the, the, what we will fail if we, because we don't solve the problem we're trying to solve right now. Don't worry about the competition or the other things. People, the, the, like, there is enough demand for what we're building right now. Let's just really, really focus on executing. And I think because, again, the numbers, if you look at just the, the latent demand for what we're seeing today for our product and where people come from, like the team really believes that. And that's, I mean, I believe it. It's, it's not something where we need to get distracted by competition. Everyone's got sort of their own wedge to go after. And there's, you know, there's about 70 million people in our wedge. And uh, and in the, the wedge below that, where people are coming in because they have a strong, you know, need to get their financial shit together, or they need some cash between between paychecks because you know uh, they need to put gas in the car or what have you. There's there's plenty of people in that market. If we serve them really really well and retain them really well, we'll have a fantastic business. You mentioned a couple of these professions that I'm curious about and how you work with them. I mean, for example, teachers or, you know, these independent Uber Lyft drivers or whatever, are you as a company more focused on perhaps 
having a partnership with some of these companies directly or some of these school you know school uh, counties that have schools under them wouldn't it be a better way to perhaps work with those folks to then get to their people as opposed to going directly to those people so um that's not our experience uh and i think um although it might i think on on the face value that it's sort of uh that would seem the case and i suppose the thought exercise is roughly this is sort of if you go out to these people and you say, why did you choose your bank today? Or, or where do you get your financial information from? Uh, very few of them will say, well, my employer or my union or what have you put me onto it. They'll say my family or my friend, uh, or I found it this other way. And so the way we go to market, we, we actually work heavily with a lot of young influencers, a lot of YouTube, Instagram. And these are typically people who are um, people who self-made entrepreneurs in their own space uh, whose financial life often is not particularly great, uh, but could be. Um, and uh, what we're able to do is with Empower, uh, you know, they, many of these people are now making six figures a year, uh, but they still have student debt. They still need to work on their credit score, et cetera. Um, with Empower, we're able to help them solve the debt problem or understand where their money's going so they can start to put money aside, start saving, improve their credit. And then they become Pied Pipers for us. And we find that that's a much stronger, deeper, trusted connection with audiences and with people than, let's say, working through an employer or what have you. You guys have raised about, I think, $25 million now. And obviously you, having worked in venture capital, uh, as a venture capitalist, you really are focused on that exit strategy and where, you know, where the company is going to go and how much is going to grow so that those that are investing also make something out of it. What is Empower's exit strategy? What is the long-term goal uh, with this company beyond just impacting the lives and educating people and, you know, making sure that people are more financially literate in terms of the company, what are the long-term exit goals? So the, this was certainly a takeaway, another takeaway from venture, which is, um, from a sort of fundamental foundational point of view, you, you want to, if you focus on building a, a business that is going to be around for 10 or 20 years and you focus on the fundamentals, cash flow or gross margin, um, and you focus on a pain point that will be around for a long, long time, those other things solve themselves. Uh, so, for example, you know, so what are we very focused on? Do we have... A very, have we solved a, like a must-have problem for a large part of the market? We believe we've really ticked that box right now. I've just to give you a sense, even this year, our customer acquisition cost, the cost of acquiring one new customer has come down 5x. So we really think we're sort of the flywheel starting to go and we've, we've nailed a pain point. Uh, we think it's a very large market opportunity. And then we look at the business fundamentals. We think we can, um, in addition to solving people's problems, I won't go into the specifics, but build a, a like a better than a one-year payback on our users that are people that are going to stick around for five or ten years, and so they'll have a very high acquisition cost of lifetime value. So the fundamentals are there. Now it's can we grow it to be a really big business? Um, and so if we do a good job of that, we you know we have aspirations to be a public company one day, and that means we have to build a business that can be at least a couple of hundred million of top-line revenue, and you know 
handy gross margins and profitable. Um, and then, so if you, if you get all those pieces right along the way, if there is an acquisition or, you know, there are acquirers, uh, that's how you get bought rather than being sold. Um, and so uh, because you've got a great business, you've got great fundamentals, you've got a great value proposition, that's why someone would pay a quote-unquote sort of strategic price. Um, and so those are all nice things and nice to have. It's not something I focus a lot on uh, because the, what I learn is if you focus on those fundamentals of a great business, you know, those things solve themselves. Um, WhatsApp uh, wasn't, you know, bought overnight, they were building and solving a pain point around secure communication and global communication in a frictionless way um, for a long, long time before that. And uh, you solve those and the other things solve themselves. I'm curious to hear your like general thoughts on the sort of broader financial system and, and where things are going because you know innovation is happening faster than ever before. I mean, we're seeing uh, just, I mean, we're seeing some rapid rapid growth in, in so many areas. And so I'm curious, you know, we see things like cryptocurrency and decentralization when it comes to, you know, um, uh, the monetary side of things. How, like, do you, how do you see the financial system changing and, and do you see Empower sort of just like adjusting to what people are doing and how people are, you know, exchanging money? Yeah. So, look, I think, you know, um, we are... I mean, for all of the craziness that is that is going on in the world today and the tension um, across so many aspects of society, uh, like on one hand, it's hard not to get up in the morning and, you know, look at Twitter or what have you and, and, and frankly, sort of have a heavy heart. Um, on the other hand, uh, if we can get some of those things, you know, uh, sorted out, the the opportunity to build and create businesses that will meaningfully impact people's lives, I think uh, is still one of the best times ever to do that. And fintech's a great example, like you brought up. And I'm, uh, I'm lucky I, I seed invested in or invest in a handful of companies in the space, including in on the crypto side, on the insurance side, on the payroll side, on um, uh, the infrastructure side of fintech payments, et cetera. All of this stuff is up for grabs. And again, there's so many ways to look at it from the good side of things to consumers. One is just to think of the sheer waste. Like a great example is taxes, right? Like why on earth when there's so many countries in the world where you push a button to submit your taxes, do we have to make it as complicated today? Like that complication is throughout the financial system. Um, and we're like slowly from the bottoms up, we're starting to chip and eat away at it, but it's going to take another 10 or 20 years. So um, uh, I, the last thing I'd say on this, this thing is the problems are not just Ameri like US-centric problems. These are global problems. Um, where I am most excited by crypto myself is really around global solutions. There are you know, um, currencies which are far more volatile than, than Bitcoin. There are countries where there are currency controls or where there are dual currency systems or where it's very difficult to, or low trust in the banking systems. And so having secure, safe, low volatile, frictionless ways to move money or to earn money, especially as we break down global barriers for earning, you know, we can pay someone in Patagonia or Eastern Europe or Vietnam. Like there's just like 
the ability for crypto to like fix and solve so many of those problems is, is very, very high and build, especially as trust in, in institutions is coming down. So um, how does that relate to Empower? Like actually for us in the next two years, probably not in a really big way. We, we, we do think a little bit about crypto and supporting people who have accounts and investments there. But for most people that we're, um, that, that we're focused on helping on, it's still very much their day-to-day, how do they make ends meet? And we're really focused on how do we use data to make their lives better? And probably the biggest way, frankly, is underwriting. And in the, um, the traditional financial system, we built a credit score system when we didn't have digital, when we had to rely on paper systems, when we had to rely on, you know, once a month, a bank sending a note to a credit bureau to say, this person paid off this bill or they did not. And that's literally still how we, we do the credit reporting and we're not using the troves of data that we have right now, which would suggest that there are a lot of very financially responsible people who should have access to credit that are being denied by the system today. Um, and so that's the problem we can solve for our people. It's still not solved. There's so much to do there. Um, that's really where we're focused. If you're an entrepreneur, though, on this bigger picture, I mean, there's just, again, the landscape is so broad. If you just pick a pick an area, pick a lane with a big, you know, I've invested in a company that does uh, factoring for an insurance for um, exporters and import global exporters and importers that are small businesses that can't access traditional insurance and systems because if you're a mom and pop exporter, uh, you know you can't insure the goods or you can't get lend a loan against the goods that you're shipping and you have these working capital issues and that business is taking off. So there's just so much room. Um, so I'd encourage anyone to like dive in. Uh, because it, it is really going to be, I think, another decade or two of just phenomenal growth and innovation as we break down barriers. Warren, you obviously have seen so many different, you know, businesses come and go, so many different pitches, you know, throughout your venture capital career or even now as an entrepreneur. But for those that are not, you know, running a business or those that aren't venture capitalists and those that aren't angel investors, but they're folks that want to become either entrepreneurs or VCs or angels or whatever it may be, where can they find information or where the, where can they stay up to date about what's coming up or some of these even like micro problems that you're talking about that you just kind of named? Unless you really see it and are investing in it or talking to people that are in it, you don't really know that those problems exist. Where can people start educating themselves more about some of the micro problems as opposed to all the macro problems that we always see, whether it's on social or through podcasts, Twitter, et cetera. I'm just curious about that. So um, I can give you a list of just like a few ideas. I'm sure there's many others, but uh, there's some really good thought leadership um, or being written by, by a handful of different folks. But if you like one example is Andreessen Horowitz, um, the team there, Angela and um, Alex Rampel and uh, a few of the others, they do, I think, both through their podcast and through written newsletters, for example, they cover a lot of really interesting themes. Like they did a podcast on, oh man, I'm trying to remember what it was, like six months ago on like reimagining the credit score and using cryptos. Like it's a great, it's a, they are great thought leaders in this space. The guys at Ribbit Capital are great thought leaders. There's a handful of um, individuals you could follow uh, on Twitter, like uh, Jake Gibson. Is, I'm just throwing out some names for, of, of folks just because uh, that could be helpful to people. I'm sure there's many other, but Jake Gibson, who is a 
um, one of the co-founders of Nerd Wallet on Twitter, for example, or Sheil, uh, who's on there as well. Uh, there's that's again a US centric on the crypto side. Like um, I'm investing in this company called Cello Labs, and you know people from all around the world can can uh, develop for them, work on the protocol, join boot camps. Uh, they do. They, they sponsor people to hack on their system or to develop or what have you, and many of these companies do. So I think one is to look for, find some thought leaders on Twitter or newsletters that you can read. Um, another is to to pick some of these companies and just join one of their hackathons or, or problem-solving um, workshops or opportunities. Another one is to pick one of the companies, Coinbase, Robinhood, us, whomever, you know, a uh, new bank in Brazil, wherever you are, and just go work for one of these companies for one or two years. Just find find an in, like find a job, work out how you can get in there, impress them, I don't know, write some code or find a, use the product, send the product manager a, uh, like your analysis, the good and the bad. I mean, it's like just doing something like that gets your foot in the door and I think you'll, it unlocks the window that you're into the, um, into the future. That's amazing yeah. advice. Um, just to wrap things up, I know you know building a company is is a shit ton of work. So, how, what do you do when you're not working? What do you do on the side, just like weekends, to stay sane? <laughs> it's a good question. Uh, so, I, I you know I um, I love spending time. I used to go like kiteboarding and cycling and skiing and fun stuff like that. Uh, these days, you know, I've got a three year old and a five year old, and so just hanging out with them and uh, you know, teaching him to ride a bike uh, is, uh, frankly, really fills my cup in 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 many ways. And I love to read. Still, I, I read and stay up on a lot of trends and 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 um, and do some continue to do some seed inventing, investing, and mentoring folks. That's that's really nice. And occasionally, what kind of, what kind of, books, uh, what kind of books do you like reading? I mean, is it like mostly you know story based? Nonfiction, fiction. It's 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 less books to be honest, and it's more like I'm reading about GPT three, this you know this latest AI thing out of OpenAI, for example. Or um, I read, I subscribe to the Financial Times, The Economist. I, I try. It's more of a. Um, it's it's a, it tends to be frankly more. Or I, I read stuff on longevity. Um, I'm I'm sort of very curious on some of the latest research and stuff coming out around our ability to basically reject, like rejuvenate ourselves. Um, and so it tends to be a bit more research and academic paper related kind of things is, is, uh, what I tend to read. And, um, and then, uh, if I, if I have any time left over, I'll try and go for a run. That's about it. Love it. Well, this has been amazing. You know, uh, thank you for hanging out with us on this beautiful Sunday and, uh, sharing your story. And you know what you're doing with Empower. It's 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 amazing because I think it's something the world really needs. And um, you know we can't we can't wait to see what happens next with you guys um, and just the whole industry as a whole. And so uh, appreciate the time. Awesome guys, it was it was it was really fun to come on today. And uh, uh, I wish I could have been there in person in LA. I was actually trying to, uh, but uh, uh, the good old uh, coronavirus obviously has uh, made it very challenging. So uh, yeah. this is certainly the next best thing. Well, next time you're out here, just let us know and we can grab a drink or something and catch up. That'd be a lot of fun. Thanks, Warren. You got it, Warren.